Hi guys and welcome to episode 11 of Diary of a Security Consultant, the show where we talk all things security, security consultants and specifically security in Ireland. Uh, this was supposed to be a slightly different show this week. It was supposed to be a Facebook Live where we were doing, answering some questions, but unfortunately technology was gotten in the way and Facebook Live doesn't seem to be working for me. Uh, I don't know if it's the internet or what, so we're just going to do it as normal and then we're going to upload to Facebook immediately after this. So like I said, slightly different in that the guys over at Security Jobs Ireland uh, this week had posted um, uh, a po post on Facebook to say that if anybody wanted to ask any questions or anything like that, we'll be happy to answer them on the on the video this week. Uh, we got six questions in, so I want to go through the, those six questions uh, and thank you to the people who sent them in uh, and give answers to those. And I'm going to publish this directly to Facebook afterwards and then the usual YouTube and podcast and stuff like that then afterwards. Um, <clears throat> So we'll start off with what we're doing this week again. Uh, once again, very, very busy week. Um, supply chain stuff again, trying to get a health-related PPE to the right places for some of our clients moving around the country to people who need it. Um, we're also doing uh, online, um, delivering online security training through Zoom, uh, webinars live to people, uh, and then doing their assessments live uh, also. Uh, which is a bit of a diff different, I suppose, slant on things and a slightly new thing for me as well, I suppose, delivering assessments live. I've delivered training live uh, before over webinars, but delivering assessments was uh, had a slightly different dynamic to us. Uh, <clears throat> the article of the week this week uh, was around shift patterns um, and security working hours and things like that. It was in response to a very, very good uh, podcast that I listened to last Sunday. Uh, it was the first of uh, Scott Taylor's podcasts, uh, security speaking uh, and he was um, in a very interesting chat with Colonel Dave Grossman who is obviously the author of some of the books I've got over there on killing and on combat uh, very well known uh, psychology expert uh, trains a lot in the military and police and they were, they were speaking about um, the impact of sleep and lack of sleep on people uh, and people's work hours and patterns and then things like caffeine and energy drinks and stuff like that and it got me kind of thinking about well, do we actually set people up for failure in the security industry and that we ask people to work longer shifts than they probably should in high stress positions, put them in difficult circumstances and then blame them when things go wrong. Uh, now I'll talk in a different podcast uh, about causal factors and we talk about proximate and distal uh, risk factors uh, when we're looking into um, cause and effect and things like that. But uh, <clears throat> in terms of that, well, the research would tell us that um, they did studies on police officers in the States a couple of years back which found that officers who changed from 8 to 12 hour shifts while well, they found no detrimental um, issues with their performance or increase in safety incidents what they did find was that officers were less motivated dealt with incidents differently were more fatigued uh, had less um, uh, work-life balance uh, and left the job quicker they did a very similar survey with nurses uh, in 2015 and found some of the similar things much higher turnover much less retention and much more difficult um, to keep staff motivated. Some of the quotes from that struck me as, you know, nurses were kind of saying, how can you expect somebody to stay on focus and on point uh, for 12 hours straight through? Um, and the Health and Safety Authority then did, did research in Ireland on it a couple of years back and they produced guidance for night workers and shift workers and they found, and they, they suggest that where a worker is regarded as safety critical or their work is regarded as safety critical or it's where it's monotonous or stressful, which quite a lot of the security industry is, uh, then eight or 10 hour shift should be the maximum and 12 hour shift should be avoided where, where possible. But the reality is that we see it all the time, 12 hour shifts are still quite normal across the security industry. Now I'm not saying all 12 hour shifts are wrong, there are times where a 12 hour shift is, it suits people to do three 
or four or 12 hour shifts and have an extra an extra day or two off during the week and that's absolutely fine but i'm saying for safety critical roles particularly in areas like door supervision where your safety is just, you always have to be on point with focus and stuff like that close protection um, and they're probably the two areas that's overlooked the most particularly door supervision i've argued for years that door supervision should be single employment as in we should be creating a profession whereby it is a person's job their sole job is door supervision but the reality is that most companies don't. It's the hours aren't there, and the rate of pay aren't there to make it a full-time wage for people, for, for, for the vast majority of people. Uh, so what we have is John who works as a mechanic Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, nine till six. He goes home, he has his dinner, he's in the, he's on the door at nine. He walks till three in the morning and he's back in at nine the next morning in his mechanic's job, walks till six, and then comes in and walks on the door again. Now there's legislation all over the place that's supposed to prevent that happening, but it, it doesn't happen, it doesn't stop it, like it happens all the time. There's a kind of a, if, if, if I don't ask, you don't tell, I keep paying you and you keep doing the work. And what happens is then, fatigued decision making isn't, uh, isn't where it should be uh, reaction times aren't where they should be deals with people differently and then you're going to have he's going to eventually make a mistake law of averages balance of probability and he's going to be blamed for that mistake when the reality is that he's been set up for failure for the pro by the process how do we get through that we end up drinking copious amounts of coffee uh, or worse still moving on to things like cans of monster red bull energy drinks stuff like that which again have been shown to have a detrimental effect on our health, a detrimental effect on decision making, detrimental effect on things like reflexes and stuff like that, uh, sleep patterns, uh, and then throws us all, all out of the way again, you know, uh, and brings us back to the start. So I highly recommend you go and look at the cop podcast. I'll copy it below in the, in the notes off this. Um, but aside from that, have a read the article and see what you think about it. And I suppose for employers, it's about looking at, okay, look, am I setting up my shifts to maximize cost and coverage or am I setting them up to maximize service that my employees deliver? You know, 12 hour shifts absolutely save you in terms of numbers of people you have recruited and simplicity of the roster, but it does have a detrimental effect in terms of how your people are going to do their job on the ground and how you're going to treat other people. So it's certainly worth considering and looking at over the time. And even things like rest periods, we have this, this thing in Irish law where you must have an 11 hour turnaround between shifts in a job. So. If you're working till eight o'clock tonight, you cannot be asked to work before 7 a.m. the next morning. You know, Most people treat that as the baseline. That is the minimum and should be treated as the minimum. You, know, you can't say, oh yeah, sure, you got your 11 hours. 11 hours is the absolute minimum. Where possible, it should be much, much more where people are moving around with shifts because again, it has a detrimental effect on well-being and decision-making and how they treat people in work. So I'm gonna move on to the questions that are going on. I got six very diverse uh, set of questions. Uh, from different things, seven, but the seventh one is a pretty easy one to, to answer. Uh, the first question was around uh, the use of force to remove somebody from a licensed premises, particularly in relation to door supervision. Now, I don't know if this person is a door supervisor or had been removed by a door supervisor, but I think the wording of the question was around um, what gives a door supervisor the right to physically put their hands on somebody and remove somebody from the premises. I suppose it comes down to two things. Um, it comes down to private property rights, and then it comes down to the right to use reasonable force and what they're doing. And then other legislation that can come in around there, uh, such as the Intoxicating Liquor Act or Licensing Acts, that have certain caveats in them that we need to understand. But I suppose the first one is bars are private property. A lot of people think that because the doors are open, that they're, they can come and go as they please. A bar is a private property. And the venue owner and the people who, who manage that venue for them have the right to choose who they have in that property. It's private, they pay rent, they pay rates, they run a business, they have policy and procedures, and they get to decide who comes in and who they serve, provided they're not refusing somebody for discriminatory reasons, but in general, they get to decide. 
if a person asks you to leave private property and you refuse, you are now trespassing. Okay? So if you refuse to leave private property, you've been asked to leave and you refuse, you are now trespassing on that private property. Now, reasonable force and justifiable use of force in Ireland is covered by sections 18, 19 and 20 um, of the Non-Fate Defence Against the Person Act 1997. Section 18 outlines four uh, types uh, or occasions where you might use force and the fourth one of those is uh, you can use reasonable force to protect the premises of another person from theft, from appropriation, damage or trespass given that person's authority. So the venue owner gives the door supervisor their authority to protect the premises from trespass. The trespasser refuses to leave, so the door supervisor is entitled to use reasonable force to remove them. Now that doesn't always mean putting your hands on them. Reasonable force is a whole different thing, but if the door supervisor deems that force is required to remove that person, as in they're being aggressive, hostile, non-compliant, not necessarily non-compliant, I probably could have worded that better, but aggressive or hostile or they're risks themselves, other people or the door supervisor, then they can use reasonable force, but only in those circumstances. Where a, a person is willingly walking or leaving or just being slow leaving, then that's a different different kettle of fish because that's not a justifiable use of force. And we'll talk about that with necessity and stuff like that. It, I might actually do a separate one altogether on reasonable force because we get quite a lot of questions in about that and I answer it during the week. Uh, so basically that's what it is. There are other sections in there in the Intoxicating Liquor Act and in some of the licensing laws, especially the licensing law where it requires a person to a publican to run an orderly house and allows them to take measures to ensure that the house remains orderly and the licensing act that talks about drunken people and disorderly conduct and the rights to remove people who are engaging in disorderly conduct uh, <clears throat> but again that's a different one so i hope that answers the, the question for that person uh, the second one was around the i suppose the newer one uh, newer issue of the coronavirus and this new emergency legislation that the state has brought in uh, and the question was can security detain somebody not obeying the self-isolation rules and that was all the question was so i'm not entirely sure the background of that or where it was or whatever the case may be so basically um the irish government has brought in new legislation allowing the gadi the, the police force in Ireland, um to detain a person who's refusing to obey the self-isolation rules now that is statutory legislation that they have brought in so in ireland Detention or arrest is covered by a piece of legislation called the Criminal Law Act 1997, uh, specifically Section 4 and its subsections of that law. And that says that any person may arrest uh, any person, any, any person may arrest a person who they witness committing an arrestable offence or have reasonable grounds to suspect they're committing an arrestable offence. And that term of arrestable offence is very important. So the term arrestable offence in Ireland is any uh, offence for which the maximum term as written in the law is five years or more in prison. So they said that any term, any any offence for, as as it's written in the law, that the uh, term in prison is five years or more, a person can arrest. Below that is either summary or indictable offences, and there are certain pieces of statutes that are written in that allow the guardie to make arrests for stuff that falls out of that category, and that's an example of that. So refusing to self isolate is not an arrestable offence. Uh, in, in terms of the Criminal Act 1997. So a private citizen cannot go and do it, and that includes security officers. Who can do it, though, is the guards, because the, the legislation has given the guards specific statutory power to arrest and detain a person under that section of, the, of that particular act. So that what makes them different than us. It's very important to understand for security officers what they can and can't make arrests on. So a security officer can, can make uh, an arrest for um, arrestable offences, things like theft, fraud, robbery, burglary, uh, assaults causing harm, assault causing serious harm, 
uh, criminal damage, stuff like that. Only in very particular circumstances. Again, I'll do a completely separate one on arrest if you want. But to answer the question, no, you cannot uh, arrest or detain somebody who's refusing to self-isolate. You could, of course, call the guards, and they do have the power under statutory law to arrest or detain, but that is not an arrestable uh, offence by a private person in, in Ireland, if that answers the question. Um, number three was sent in by Keith, a very experienced uh, security manager uh, in the industry, and he asked a question about how to unlawfully deal with gangs of 12-year-olds who come in to commit theft um, with or without the parents where the minor leaves the store with the goods on her own. Uh, so under Irish legislation, those children, because of their, their, by virtue of their age, um, will not be charged with that crime. doesn't mean they can't be arrested, but will not be charged with the, with the crime. So if you choose to, you can still go down the route of arresting that, that minor, provided you have all the risk controls and the safety measures in place, such as witnesses, etc., etc. The reality is that they won't be charged. You could also, probably a simpler way, is create a policy where you do not allow children unsupervised into your store. So if they are coming into your store without the supervision, or if you see them being left on their own by a parent at any point and you're viewing that, you can quite easily go up and ask them to leave um, or refuse entry to them as they come in. Bear in mind that this only has to happen once. Talking about, I'm not talking about arresting kids on an ongoing basis. You have the child, you detain them once or you ask them to leave once. Anytime they choose to come back in after that, you just simply refuse them entry whether they're with the parent or not. Uh, that would be my goal. That would be my kind of approach to it. I'll have to deal with it once, and then I'll have to go and deal with it then after that. Um, Mark uh, McDonald sent in a, a comment underneath that, referencing a, a potential piece of legislation in Ireland called Fagan's Law, uh, which was suggested by uh, Fianna Fáil deputy uh, Anne Rabbit a number of years back, which was um, to make it an offence to incite a child to commit a crime. And I thought it was a um, an interesting piece of legislation. Now that piece of legislation. Uh, has been moved on into the doll and, and speaking terms and given to it and if it is passed or when it's passed i don't know will it be it'll be referred to as a criminal law recruitment of children to engage in criminal activity bill 2018 so it has not been passed and that will make it a crime to incite a child to commit an indictable offense now as i see it there's been a number of attempts to do stuff like this in the past and um, one which was to punish the parent for the crime of the child, so if the, if the child's arrested for some crime, it doesn't matter what, that the, ch the parent would be found, uh, fined for it, and that would, was, was found to be unconstitutional because you cannot punish somebody for the crimes of another person. Um, <clears throat> but this is slightly different in that if a person knows, should have known, or is reckless to whether they, they, they knew that their child is committing a crime, or if they're encouraging the child to commit the crime, or any adult is uh, encouraging a child to commit a crime, then the adult can be charged with a separate offence and the, the offence is in the incitement. Now, there, are, there is going to be legal issues around that because obviously the burden of proof in a criminal case is Ireland, in Ireland is that you know, the state would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the adult knew that the child was going to commit the, the actions or that the adult should have known that the child was going to commit the actions based on what they had said to them. Uh, so, it's one thing having a law and arresting somebody and charging somebody, it's another thing finding them guilty in a, in a court. So I could see it struggling there. It would be nice uh, if it goes through. That was heard for mention on the summer session in 2019 to start being debated. And I believe it had started being debated. Um, and after that, it seems to have fallen off a cliff. I don't know whether it's, it's stuck at committee stage, whether heads of bills have been drawn up, but it, it is very much still with the, with the government to decide whether they want to proceed with that. With that. Uh, piece of legislation. I know it got 
cross-party support. I know it had been a recommendation for the Child Safety Rapporteur in their report that some piece of legislation come in. Currently, uh, that could be dealt with under a piece of legislation called incitement. But the incitement legislation that we currently have is quite is quite vague, so it would be very, very difficult for the Guardian to do it. As far as I'm aware, the legislation was specifically designed around preventing children being used for burglaries, as in sneaking in. But I know it was put to retail excellence at the time, and retail excellence very much welcomed it as, as being something that they would like to see. But currently, all you can deal with, to go back to Keith's question, was you can deal with the crime as if it was a crime. It is a crime. Uh, you can still arrest. The child will not be... Um, the child will not be... Um, charged with the crime in all likelihood they will be sent into some kind of juvenile diversion program but you can still arrest if it's a last resort as in you've tried deterrence stuff like that's not working the child leaves it to stuff you can absolutely still stop them uh, and have them uh, taken away by the guards and after that point then it gives you the leeway to just refuse entry to them and the parents or you could like i said create that policy of no unsupervised children if they're moving x amount from away from parents you tell the parents you need to supervise your kids uh, or you need to take them out of the, the, the store or whatever the case might be. So I hope that answers the question. So that was questions three and four in together. Uh, question five, again, came back to the uh, coronavirus stuff and it was around so should security staff outside shops doing the crowd counting and stuff like that be issued with the surgical uh, or the dust masks and, and, uh, and gloves and PPE. Um, my answer to that is coming um, Twofold. I'm not a medical professional. I wouldn't seek, seek to clinically give clinical guidance to anybody. But I have done a lot of medical training. I have done some training in relation to uh, pandemic risk management and a crisis management. And I've done a significant amount of training in risk management, managed them overall management of risks. And what I would say is, my opinion, if it was just crowd counting, then the last thing that should be given is the masks and the gloves because they are not a substitute for anything else. And this is just my opinion. If I was putting guys in there. Uh, you can disagree if you want. If you're maintaining what you're asked to maintain, social distancing and um, ha hand washing and hand sanitizing, then PPE such as gloves and masks are secondary to that. If you want to then go on and issue them on top of that, absolutely fine, but they are not a replacement. And I spoke about this last week already. I see uh, security staff standing outside shops They've got gloves on, they've got masks on, and they're standing a foot and a half away from a person pointing out where they want them to go. You know, if you're maintaining social distance, or they're coming into physical contact with doors and trolleys and stuff like that, and then they're going and meeting the next customer and another trolley, still while wearing the same thing. The mask does not stop you picking up, it just stops you transmitting it, the types of masks that you are using, uh, if you do have it. Uh, and as long as you are maintaining social distancing, you don't you have any danger of picking it up anyway. The gloves only work if you're going to change the gloves every single time you put your hands on a surface. So for me, if you're talking hierarchy of risk control, eliminate the risk, can't do that. Reduce the risk, isolate the risk, control the risk. So put in place distance, barriers, stuff like that. And only after that is in place should you put gloves and masks and things like that in place. Because the gloves and the mask is the final barrier, you know. It is, it is my opinion, no, you shouldn't. I think it gives the wrong impression for the store. I think it gives the wrong impression to customers. And I don't think it gives you any valid protection if you're not following the other stuff anyway. If you aren't following social distancing, the glove and the mask won't do you any good because you're still getting stuff on the gloves. You're not changing them. You reach up and touch the mask. You could still be passing on germs or virus. So it's, it's kind of irrelevant to, to me. And that would be my opinion. If it makes some people feel better, that's fine. But don't call it safety reasons and don't call it risk management because that's not what it is. Um, number six, uh, and a 
second to last one, I suppose, will the new security licenses have an end date of three months or how will it end? So for those who aren't familiar with it, recently the private security authority in Ireland um, were requested to relax their, um, I suppose, uh, licensing criteria for static guards. It, with the view that well the training companies can't train new guards at the minute because they can't because of social distancing etc so uh, what they're going to do is allow people to apply for licenses uh, do their guard vetting or the police vetting work for three months and after that three months come back and do the training course uh, and they're saying that their license will be void after three months uh, however to my knowledge the license that is issued will be a three-year license the same as everybody else's license so the onus is going to be on the regulator at the end of it to go back to all of those licenses that they've issued within that three-month period and say show me your training cert show me your training cert show me your training cert or revoke your license and even if they revoke the license they are then relying on the person to give it back now under the private security services act it's an offense not to give it back um, however whether they go out looking for that person uh, to do it is, is again beyond me um, how they how they go and find them so it's going to be a significant amount of work for the, the regulator and for companies to make sure that they, after the three months come up because basically if the if the regulator doesn't do their job and you still employ somebody who doesn't have the training after the three months it's the company who gets the fine it's the company who's in trouble uh, so I can see the regulators passing everything off over the, onto the company when it comes on but to answer the question no they won't have a three-month duration date they will have the full three years and the onus will be on the employer and the regulator to get back in touch with that person to make sure that they have done their training and get the training certificate off that person. Um, so that was the sixth question. Seventh was pretty straightforward. A person came in uh, and asked me, uh, does a security guard going onto a construction site still need a safe pass because the construction sites are now closed and the construction industry is now kind of closed down for the foreseeable period of time? of time and obviously the safe pass industry is also closed down so they cannot now get a safe pass so what we've seen is a large explosion of security con uh, construction sites looking for security on them and the security staff who would normally have been provided who have static guarding licenses and could do it don't have a safe pass to go on it so the question was asked do they need it i've checked it out and yes you do need it even if there's no active construction there's still construction ancillary activity going on there's still equipment there's still scaffolding up, there's still building and equipment, there's still electrical issues. So yes, you do still need a safe pass even though the site is closed. So I hope that answers the question. How you're going to get that is beyond me. It's extremely difficult. I know that Solus have come out and said that anybody who's out since March the 1st have been given an exemption until July and they can continue to walk uh, safe pass, including security. Um, so hopefully that helps out some people. Um, so that's the end of the question so hopefully those answers I'm going to post that on the Facebook page now on the YouTube page and it'll go on the podcast then as well if you're listening to the podcast um, <clears throat> I suppose for the rest of this week we still have I just sorry I just have the screen open here in front of me I still got 33 queries and questions that can through the page about other stuff to get through um, <clears throat> we're also launching a charity drive uh, this week as you put on the page I started this week actually uh, for the Laurel Lynn Hospice, which is a children's hospice for terminally ill children, uh, to help them uh, with terminal illnesses, etc., and with medical costs. Uh, so, I'm doing the, the thing is to do 3,000 push ups in the month of April uh, to raise money for them. So, I'm going to raise the share or share the donate button uh, on the page in the next couple of minutes. Uh, I'm hoping to exceed that. I'm hoping to do 3,000 in probably about 10 or 12 days. I'm probably hitting maybe seven, seven and a half thousand push-ups for the for the month. But anything that you can give, even if it's just a cup of coffee, it doesn't go to me. It goes straight to Laurel Inn. We've done a good bit of work. Um, 
this year already uh, on charities. Uh, in February we did, I ran 100 miles to raise money for the Matter Foundation. And at the start of this uh, coronavirus thing, we did a book sale where we sold all of, our, all of the nightclub security manuals for nine quid um, and gave 60% uh, of the royalties to um, a loan. So I think that was 120 euros was, was donated to a loan, the, the elderly charity. Uh, and then this one's for a children's hospice. So I'm hoping this year to raise somewhere around between 1,500 and 2,000 euros for, for charity. We always like to do something around that for charity. Uh, and then we've got a busy weekend coming up as well. So next week I'm going to be back with another article on Monday, uh, another show on Friday. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some um, uh, news for you around things that might be changing in the security industry in the next couple of weeks. So until next week, thanks very much for tuning in. This has been episode 11. Cheers for your time and I hope that answers your questions.